When I asked uh, Pastor Phil what he would be preaching on on Easter Sunday, he indicated that he'd be speaking about Jesus' encounter with Mary, and so I pitched the idea of uh, preaching the text that immediately follows the one that he preached this morning, and I've titled the message, The Mission Charter of the Church. And we're going to read in a moment from uh, John 20, but before we do, I invite you, if you have Bibles with you, or else you're free to read the text as it is projected above me, from the Old Testament and from Genesis 12. If there is a mission charter for the church in the Old Testament, we find it in Genesis 12. This is a very significant passage in the Old Testament, and its significance is picked up, up on uh, by a number of New Testament authors who quote it. And I want to read these verses with you now. The opening three verses of Genesis 12, the context is a world under the curse. And in these verses, you hear the word bless five times. God is going to reverse the cursed world. He's going to bring blessing, and he's going to do it through Abraham and his family. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." I now invite you to turn with me to the New Testament and to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And as I indicated, we'll pick up the account of Easter where Pastor Phil left off this morning at verse 19. We'll read to the end of verse 23. This will be the text for the message. Here we find, I propose, the mission charter for the church. John 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. A lot of people today claim that the COVID-19 pandemic has changed the world forever. I wonder if you buy that claim on the surface, it has some legitimacy, doesn't it? The world is different now from how it was before the pandemic. And even at Blessings Christian Church, where I serve, we made some changes and we haven't resorted to how things were before the pandemic. I can give you an example. We no longer collect uh, offerings in church by, by means of circulating a plate or a bag. All donations are made electronically in a moment of worship. I'm not recommending that for you. I'm quite ambivalent about it myself, but it's an illustration of how a change is made because of the pandemic that probably is enduring. 
Prior to the pandemic, people would sometimes say, 9-11 changed the world forever. And there's some legitimacy to that as well. I've spent a lot of time in recent weeks and months in airports, and airport security today is quite unlike what it was prior to 9-11. The foreign policy of Western nations has changed considerably as well. Before 9-11, people would sometimes say the tearing down of the Berlin Wall in 1989 has changed the world forever, and it did reconfigure the map. It marked the demise of communist countries in Western Europe. But I want you to see with me this afternoon that there's one event in particular in world history that has changed the world forever, and that's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I sometimes struggle with skepticism and doubt, and there have been times in my life, especially when I was younger, when it was difficult to accept and affirm the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It did not seem true to the world in which I lived. It seemed foreign. It seemed unfamiliar. It didn't seem entirely believable. And I've become, over the years, and for this I thank the Holy Spirit, increasingly convinced of the resurrection, and in part because I see resurrection everywhere in the world. Far from being foreign to the world, I think that resurrection is a theme that, in fact, runs throughout the world. And you see it, for instance, in the plant world, in the botanic world, if you will. Sometimes uh, we may buy a bag of grass seed, and the grass seed is essentially dead. It's not alive. Our biologist friends will tell us it's not quite dead. It's dormant, and they're right. But you take this grass seed, which is, does not demonstrate the dynamic of life at all, and you put it in the ground, and you, you irrigate, and up comes green grass. You take a dry and dusty old acorn, you plant it in the ground, and up comes a majestic oak tree. It's the restoration of vitality. It's a kind of resurrection. I can give you an illustration still closer to home. Every night when we go to bed, there's a point where we close our eyes and we fall asleep. And we lose for a few hours the powers of consciousness. We're unable to think or to remember or to plan and after a number of hours pass, those powers of consciousness are restored, and it's the restoration of vitality. It's a kind of coming back to life from dormancy or a kind of death. And then I think I can illustrate this in yet another way, and that's on the existential level where you and I have experienced a kind of sequence of death and resurrection in our lives where we felt like something in us was dying and maybe something else was coming to life. And you have many people in the world uh, who are captivated by substances, for instance. And at some point, they, they stop. Cold turkey, we say. And there's a restoration of vitality that is sometimes physiological in nature, whereby a person's appearance can change as they're restored to health. It's the restoration of vitality. We see this kind of thing all over the world, and the most extreme example of it is the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday morning. Because we human beings have extraordinary ingenuity, we have tremendous resources, we've acquired a lot of skill through technology and science, and we can resolve a lot of the world's problems. But there is one problem that we've been unable to resolve, and that's the problem of death itself. The death rate has remained constant throughout world history. Every person who, who's born subsequently dies. It is the 
ultimate picture of the implications of sin and the inability of human beings to deal with that implication. And then, of course, on Easter Sunday morning, we have this marvelous event where Jesus, as a human being, the Son of God, to be sure, as a human being, comes back to life, and death could not keep him in the grave, and he broke the shackles of death, and he emerged alive. And the world today is different because of it. There is in the world a human being who was dead and is now alive. He's at the right hand of God. He's in heaven. He's in God's domain. We're not exactly sure where that is. But there is in the universe a human being who is dead and is now alive. When Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't simply that he broke the power of death. He launched a new creation. He inaugurated, in some sense, a new world order. And now, uh, this afternoon, we're going to look at this passage from John 20, where Jesus meets with his disciples as the one who has just emerged from the grave, as the conqueror of death, and he has a plan to change the world. He has a mission strategy to advance this new world order, this new creation that he has launched. And we're so curious about how this is going to happen. He, with all this power, what's it going to look like? And he meets, doesn't he, with his disciples. There were 10 in the room. Judas wasn't there. Thomas wasn't there. 10 disciples. And these 10 disciples are a key component of this mission strategy to change the world. And it's anticlimactic. Because who are these disciples? Some of the disciples we hardly know anything about. There's James, the son of Elpheus, also known as James the Lesser. That's because there was another James. How would you like to be one of two James and you're James the Lesser? This is is James the insignificant one. We know almost nothing about James, son of Elf. How about Bartholomew? What can you say about Bartholomew, the disciple? We know next to nothing about him. These are not exactly impressive people, even if you were to think about the, the prominent disciples. You're not quickly impressed. There's Peter, of course. Peter, who had been the recipient of this great promise from Jesus, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Peter, who had been the recipient of this great prayer from Jesus, Satan, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And then his faith fails. And he denies Jesus, not once, not twice, but Three times with these individuals, Jesus, the risen Lord, the King of Kings, the one who has conquered the grave, the one who has launched the new creation, is now going to implement his mission strategy, and it involves these feeble people, and he has no plan B. There is no plan B. And it's the mission strategy that has been entrusted to us as well. And so in the time that we have together this afternoon, I want us to look at this strategy and then the three gifts that Jesus provides the church to fulfill the strategy, the mission charter for the church. What is it? Well, we find it in our text. It's verse 21, isn't it? As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You recognize a correspondence, don't you, between how the Father sends Jesus and how Jesus sends us. 
God is a missional God who sends Jesus. Jesus is a missional Savior who sends us. And there's a correspondence between how the Father sent Jesus and how Jesus sends us. Well, how did the Father send Jesus? Well, the word that we use to describe this is a big theological word, and it's the word incarnation. Incarnation. It means that Jesus became human. He did not stay in the safe immunity of heaven. He did not merely touch down like an alien visitor, but he became a real human being. He lived on earth. He inhabited this realm. There was this nearness, this proximity, this closeness between the Son of God and humanity as Jesus clothed himself with humanity. We sang this uh, wonderful hymn prior to the Sermon, and I scratched down this line which captures this idea. I've got to read my handwriting now. The God of ages stepped down to wear my sin and bear my shame. Do you remember singing that? That's the idea that Jesus faced the temptations that we faced, that we face. He bore the sorrows that we bear. He carried our sins to the cross and there carried them away. He died our death. There was a total identification of love. Because Jesus in his ministry touched the untouchables. And he reached out to those who were outcasts in society. He drew close to those from whom people ran away. And he was near to them and he was close to them and he was empathic with them. He became one with us, one with the least of us, with the last of us, one with those who are little among us, one with those who are languishing among us. And so incarnation is the model of mission for Jesus. It's how the Father sent the Son, but it's also how the Son sends us. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you, which means that our model for missions must also be incarnational. And I think we can say it must be incarnational first in terms of space, in terms of geography. We should live among people. I'm not a fan of churches being constructed on the outskirts of town. I'm very much persuaded that churches should be inside of town. As we see in world history, this enormous migration to cities, why is it that churches are moving to the outskirts and away from cities? I don't want to be unnecessarily categorical or dogmatic about this. There may be a place for building a church on the outskirts of town. But ordinarily, we want to be where the people are. And we, in terms of our own lives, want to live alongside of people who maybe don't know Jesus and become acquainted with them, because it's not only a matter of entering the space of others, it's also a matter of entering the thought worlds of others and the emotional worlds of others. We must have an incarnational model of missions whereby we are familiar with how people around us think. And not first to critique them and to judge them, but to understand them. And I often have to say to my secularist neighbors, I don't reject your logic. I think your logic is perfectly sound, but I reject your major premise. I reject the worldview out of which you operate. I think if you have that worldview, the way you think about things is perfectly clear and logical, even moral for you. 
But the gospel that Jesus preaches is foreign to this world and foreign to this culture. It's radical. And it's a big step for people to come to see Jesus as king. But can we sit alongside of people? Can we listen to them? Can we understand how they think? Can we understand why they're lonely or why they're anxious or why we are lonely or why we are anxious? We must be incarnational in our model of missions, which means closeness and proximity to the people around us with a view to understanding how they think and how they feel and why they think what they think and why they feel what they feel. There was a term that people used in times past, which I think is still a good one. It's friendship evangelism. I wonder how many of you have friends who are not Christian believers. It's a problem that I sometimes see within the Reformed Church orbit, whereby all of our contexts are church people. And I'm sometimes astounded to discover people who have no Christian friends, and sometimes I discover that they, in fact, are incapable of having a conversation with people who aren't Christian because they've been so secluded in their Christian ghettos for so long. I want to be careful here. The Apostle John says we should not be friends with the world, but that's referring to an alignment with sin. Jesus, we learn in the Gospels, was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And his model of missions was very different from the Pharisaic model of missions. The Pharisees, perhaps you know, were Jews at the time of Jesus, a populist group, quite devout. But they had a different model of missions, an arm's length model whereby they kept their distance from those they perceived to be sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, for fear of contamination. They thought, oh, you get close to sinners and your holiness will be compromised. So let's not get close to them. Let's keep our distance from them. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke in particular, you have a wonderful story that illustrates this difference. It's Luke 7, where Jesus is in the house of Simon the Pharisee. And in walks what the text calls a sinful woman. Scholars conjecture that she was a sex worker, a street walker, a tabloid sinner. And she gets, I don't know if you know the story, but she gets down on her knees and she wets the feet of Jesus with her tears, wipes his feet with her long hair, empties the contents of her perfume bottle on his feet. Meanwhile, Simon the Pharisee is watching and he's wagging his finger. And he says, clearly this man cannot be a prophet because if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, that she is a sinful woman. Simon was embarrassed that this woman had come into his house and then embarrassed that Jesus had permitted her to come as close as he had. And for him, it was the ultimate evidence that Jesus was not a prophet because he did not share the Pharisaic model of missions whereby You kept your distance from sinners for fear of having your holiness contaminated. But Jesus here says to us, as the Father has sent me, so I am am sending you. And that the model of missions that you ought to have is not the Pharisaic model, but the model that the Father has for Jesus, an incarnational model. 
But I want to make this point as well, that isn't it interesting how Jesus, though he identified with sinners, though there's a total identification of love, Jesus retained his own identity. He did not compromise his own identity. Though he became human, he remained divine. And we need to understand if we're Christian believers that we've been called out of the world and then sent into the world as those who were called out of the world, but we do not go into the world to become like the world. We retain our identity as those who were called out of the world. You know, I'm the pastor at Blessings Christian Church. I'm one of the pastors at least, and I think there have been times where we in the leadership have maybe overemphasized the need for proximity and for closeness. And for some time, I saw some people in our church being colonized by the world. And so I've begun to say to people, the way we go wide is by going deep. And you're only going to be effective in missions if you're grounded in the Word of God, if you're taught Scripture, if you imbibe Scripture. It's not about minimizing the importance of doctrine. The way to go wide is to go deep. Because though we're to be close to those around us, to understand them, to minister to them for their well-being, we need to know who we are as those who are called out of the world. And we need to retain that distinct identity. Well, perhaps you hear this afternoon, I think it's a little overwhelming this strategy that Jesus has for changing the world, for advancing the new creation. But Jesus is a wonderful king, and he's a king who not only commands, but he gives what he commands. And here Jesus gives the disciples and gives us, by extension, three gifts. Three gifts. I wonder if you can see them with me in the text. First of all, he gives the gift of peace. He walks into this room of disciples excluding, of course, as I said, Judas and Thomas. And he says, peace be with you. Not once, twice. Peace be with you. It was the conventional greeting of the Jews, both then and now. Jews in the streets of Jerusalem today will say shalom as they greet one another. But Jesus gives this conventional greeting in an unconventional way. In fact, he says explicitly in John 14, I do not give peace as the world gives peace. But what kind of peace does Jesus give? Well, I think, on the one hand, it's peace of mind. And we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples at this moment, and I think it's safe to say that they were disillusioned. They had high hopes for Jesus. They probably had some kind of earthly expectation that he was going to be great David's greater son to sit on the throne in Jerusalem and defeat their enemies, especially the Romans. But he died this horrible death on the cross, and they were disillusioned. I think we can say, secondly, that they were probably ashamed. We know from the gospel writer Mark that when the soldiers apprehended Jesus in order to take him to the crucifixion site, the disciples forsook Jesus and fled. We know that at least John made his way back to the foot of the cross. He's there as Jesus is dying, but the disciples forsook him and fled. And now Jesus is standing in their midst, and they were not only disillusioned, they must have been ashamed. 
And then thirdly, we could say quite safely because the text tells us that they were fearful. They were in a rock room out of fear of the Jews. The Jews had killed their leader. Perhaps they were next to be killed. And so in this room, you have these frail, feeble disciples, disillusioned, ashamed, afraid. And suddenly Jesus appears and he says, peace be with you. My friends, so disillusioned, ashamed, and fearful, peace. Peace of mind. It must have been a wonderful word for the disciples to hear. And yet I think that this peace that Jesus extends must be related to what he has just done on the cross on Good Friday. And if you've grown up in the church at all, if you know something about the Bible, you may be familiar with the Day of Atonement, the most significant day in the Israelite calendar, Yom Kippur. And on that special day, the high priest, you know, would enter the inner sanctum of the temple, the most holy place. He would offer a sacrifice for his sins and for the sins of his people. And if he reemerged from the temple in order to give the blessing, the people could be assured that the sacrifice was accepted. And so they waited patiently as the high priest was there in the inner sanctum making the sacrifice. They waited patiently to see him reemerge. And when he reemerged, they could be confident that the sacrifice for their sins had been accepted. And now Jesus emerges, as the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 6, through the, the veil of death, the curtain of death. And he shows them the scars in his hand, and scholars think maybe he was raising them in this priestly gesture. He merges through the curtain. His sacrifice has been accepted, raises his hands. And of course, the high priests on the Day of Atonement would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And now Jesus emerges from the curtain of death, raises his hand, shows them the scars, and says, peace be with you. Not simply peace of mind, but peace of conscience. The sacrifice that I offered on the cross has been accepted. And your sins, however great, however long ago, however recent, are forgiven because of that sacrifice. It's the gift of peace. But they didn't only need peace, they needed power, didn't they? And that's the second gift that Jesus gives. Notice with me, verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Not just peace, but also power. The Holy Spirit is the indispensable gift for the missional church. What we need is power in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who convicts us of our sin. The Spirit is the one who testifies of Jesus the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, no one says, Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit. And it was the Spirit who had descended upon Jesus at his baptism. It was the Spirit who empowered the incarnate Jesus for his work of ministry. And now Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The Father sent me with the Spirit to resource my ministry. And now I'm sending you with the Spirit to resource your ministry. And there were times in the early church when people were overwhelmed with uh, the context in which they ministered. I think, for example, of Acts chapter 4, 
You have uh, Peter and John who are hauled before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the supreme court of the Jews, and they're told not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John say, what are we going to do now? We can't speak or preach in the name of you. They go back and they meet with the other disciples and they pray, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then they say, Lord, grant your servants boldness. And you read in the text, it's Acts 4, neighborhood of verse 30, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of the Lord with boldness. Now, I don't believe that the disciples here received the Holy Spirit. I think they received a sign because in Luke 24, Jesus said to them, go to Jerusalem and wait there for the Spirit. We have the Spirit today. We don't wait for the Spirit. They were given a sign, and it was a sign by which they were to associate the Holy Spirit with the sacred breath of Jesus. He breathed on them said, receive the Holy Spirit, so that we would forever make that association as well. The Holy Spirit with the sacred breath of Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to be a missional church. And then thirdly and lastly, it's not just the gift of peace or the gift of power. There's this wonderful, staggering promise that we find at the very end in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What in the world does that mean? It was a text that was hotly debated at the time of the Protestant Reformation. The Roman Catholics then and now saw this text as warrant for their practice of hearing private confessions and granting private absolutions. I don't know if any of you have a background in Roman Catholicism. Perhaps you've been in a Roman Catholic church and you've seen a confessional booth still used across the globe today where you can go and meet with the priests and confess your sins. And here the priest absolve you of them. The Protestant reformers pushed back against that interpretation, and their argument was a sound one. They said to the Roman Catholic friends, there's one problem with your interpretation as of this text as warrant for private confessions, and it is this, that the disciples to whom Jesus spoke these words didn't understand them in that way. And there's no instance in the book of Acts anywhere of, of, of an apostle hearing a private confession and, and granting private absolution. But the apostles understood this in terms of the preaching of the gospel. So that Peter on the day of Pentecost, for example, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins. And it's what a preacher does in church. He says, if you repent and believe, your sins will be forgiven. And guess what? They are forgiven. And God binds himself to these words that earthly, frail, feeble pastors speak here on earth. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven through the terms of the gospel and through the preaching of the gospel. And if the preacher says, if you don't repent and don't believe, your sins are not forgiven. And guess what? They're not forgiven. But if you're here in church and you're repentant and you're deeply pained by the depth and the gravity and the seriousness of your sin and if you endeavor 
by every mean that God makes available to amend your ways and to turn from sinful patterns of living. And if you entrust yourself to Jesus, rest and rely on him alone, throw yourself on him and say, I can't do this on my own. I need you and I need your sacrifice. Your sins are forgiven. And maybe you're accustomed to hearing this, but there's really nothing like it in the world. Where in the world can you go to find forgiveness? To a judge? No. To a police officer? No. To a therapist? No. I read a letter to the editor in the Toronto Star, I think it was some years ago, by a, a gentleman who had grown up in an atheist home, and he said, I knew as a young boy that I was doing things that were, that were wrong, and I had guilt, and I had nowhere to go with my guilt. I had an individual email me just this past week, a Chinese fellow, I don't, I don't know who he is, but he said, I want to speak to you about something terrible that I've done, and I'm overwhelmed with guilt, and I don't know what to do or where to go. Where can you go? And Jesus gives this amazing, staggering promise to these ten frail, feeble disciples as he launches the new creation and says to them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you preach the gospel, the terms of the gospel, people believe, they repent, their sins really are forgiven. And so it's a mission charter that is impressive, overwhelming. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. It's a model for missions that ought to be incarnational, one in which our lives are embedded with the lives of others in empathic ways. But we don't do it alone. We do it with three gifts, the gifts of peace, peace of mind, peace of conscience. We do it with power, the power of the Holy Spirit, the sacred breath of Jesus. And we do it with the promise that our ministry is not in vain, but that God binds himself to our ministry on earth such that the sins forgiven here through the preaching of the gospel are in fact forgiven. Let's pray together. Our gracious and loving God, we thank you for your word and for your son and for the great sacrifice he made and for his victory Easter Sunday morning. We thank you for enlisting us, frail, feeble, weak, stubborn people, for your purposes. Help us to embrace the challenges you give. Help us to embrace the mission you assign us. And never to think that we can accomplish this on our own, but to embrace this mission with a sense of peace that you bestow, with power that you make accessible through your spirit, and with this great promise that our work will not be in vain. We pray that each of us this afternoon might be encouraged by the love of the Lord Jesus, evident in these gifts displayed, bestowed so lavishly upon us mere sinners. Please accompany us as well throughout this week. Give us eyes for your glory. And we pray that something of the beautiful character of Jesus might be apparent 
in everything we do with everyone we meet. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.